Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining today. I am very, very sorry about our tardy beginning. I don't run the world, Hashem does. And Hashem decided that today we should have a systems malfunction. Okay? (laughs) Baruch Hashem, the system is fixed, and now we are able to study Torah together. And I'm glad to see that some of you are joining. Before I begin, I would like to note with great sadness the brutal murder of a beautiful young man who was engaged to be married, a true hero of Klal Yisrael. A Chabad Lubavitch Chassid, a student of Lubavitch Yeshiva system, who was a lone soldier, made Aliyah, by himself from South Africa. Elio David, the son of Avi and Devorake, whose life was tragically snuffed out yesterday by a treacherous act of absolute evil. He was laid to rest earlier today, and as his neshama begins an extraordinary ascent that none of us can fathom, it is our privilege to dedicate the Torah we will study today, Le'ilu Nishmasi, to the further elevation of his soul. May Hashem comfort his shattered family as only Hashem can. And may we finally come to a time in which there will be no more tests, and no more sadness, and no more mourning, and no more grief. The fulfillment of the prophetic verse that speaks of tears being wiped off every face and the return of those who have lived to rejoin us once again in the third base of Migdash Bimheira will be Amen or Amen. May the words of Torah we study together, may the words that I share with you today be desired on heaven and be meaningful and a balm for this holy neshama. And appropriately, or should I say eerily, <laughs> today's class is entitled The Test. I'm not going to try and provide answers, chas v'sholem, heaven forfend, for catastrophes, disasters, tragedies. But I will share with you, to the best of my ability, the holy words of the great Rabbeinu Bachaya, as they are illuminated by the outstanding sages and spiritual Torah teachers of the Jewish people over the course of the centuries. So for means of station identification, just so we can all get back on the same page. Oh, by the way, <laughs> if you're following along in the Kihat edition, 
We're on page 83. And it's entitled, this part of the, of the Shara B'tachin is entitled, The Reason for Human Effort. So, we have already elaborated in great detail in the previous episodes on this idea that a person will oftentimes be required to invest extraordinary efforts in providing sustenance for themselves and their loved ones. Obtaining one's livelihood is no easy task. And it always involves a tremendous amount of what we call, in Hebrew, hishtadlut, strenuous efforts, mindful, premeditated, carefully thought out strategies that are put into action, be it in transactional business or in the pursuit of a profession or particular vocation. None of it goes easy, per se. As we comment in our High Holiday Liturgy, sometimes we literally expend or spend our very lives bringing home our daily bread. Sometimes that's a sad commentary. People spend and destroy their lives in order to make a livelihood, forgetting that the livelihood is in order to live, not the other way around. But at any rate, that's not the point of, of today's class. We are going to focus on why Hashem made us engage in these efforts in order to obtain our basic needs, rather than making them available to us for no or very little effort. The ha'ilo. Let's dive right into it. The words of Rabbeinu B'chayev, the ha'ilo, and the reason. Asher ba'avura chayev habayra esa'odam. The reason for which the Creator obligated, necessitated the person. Lachazer ulesavev, to seek and to find all kinds of causes in order so that he might be able to reach the achievement or the objective of making a living, of having a livelihood. And the other things that we, and I'm going to put this in quotation marks, need as well. And there are varying levels of needs. We'll talk about that much later on in today's episode. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, we need this. You think we don't need it. <laughs> I think we could do without it. But Torah says otherwise. And there are two reasons why this is needed. I want to direct your attention for a few moments to the commentary of the sages, of the rabbis, who taught the Shara B'tochem and delved into his holy words. So first, we'll start off with the commentary of the sage who entitled his work Ne'eder Bar-Kodesh, Adorned in Holiness. He says like this, In other words, Hatam Not why are we able, why do we need to? That's a very, very subtle but important distinction. You see, my friends, there are things in life we choose to do, but we don't have to. 
That's a choice we make. You can't say, so God, why did you force me to go on the roller coaster? And then something happened. And I said, well, God, you forced me to go on a roller coaster. And God will say, no, I didn't. I didn't force you to go on any roller coaster. The Rambam in Mora Nevuchim talks about one sage who commented that life is filled with tragedy. Life is filled with suffering. Life is filled with difficulty and so many evils. And Maimonides disputes this. Rambam says, I beg your pardon, <laughs> life isn't filled with so many horrible things. People fill their lives with horrible things because I need, I must have. <laughs> I can't, can't understand why people would risk their lives for a moment of fun. You call me a wet blanket, but why would you go to a roller coaster where you're actually in danger? And they tell you you're in danger and they strap you in. Like, for what? What do you get out of it? Maybe I'm just a boring guy. I don't know. I don't get it. To me, this notion of risking one's life for a thrill, for a moment of fun, it's crazy. Why would I do that? I once told a member of my family, he said, come on, come on, come on the roller coaster. I'm like, what if I'm the one unlucky guy who falls out? He's going to say on my tombstone, here lies the idiot who rode a roller coaster. Please. There are plenty of safe ways to enjoy the pleasures of the life Hashem gave us without risking my life. So I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about anything wild, dangerous, unnecessary. Nobody asked you to go out drinking on the town at night. Nobody asked you to engage in all kinds of dangerous activities. Nobody asked you to do those things. What did Hashem ask of us? Or what is required of us? <laughs> it's required that we work hard to make a living. Just about nobody can kick back and watch success unfold. That's what we're talking about here. And I think this point cannot be overemphasized. The issue at hand is God's pressure or the need that God placed upon us, not the realities of many people's lives. Need to do this. You need to? Why? Well, I've got to live. Okay. So when we're talking about reasonable living, reasonable living cannot be obtained effortlessly. And the question is why? As the Neder Bakedish continues, he says, to pursue, to find cause. You know, he says, it would seem, ostensibly, it's shocking, astonishing. Hatam, the reason for this. I mean, God is so good. We believe in God's goodness. We believe in divine largeness. We believe that God gives. If He gives for free, without us having earned it, quite gratuitously, so then why wouldn't He arrange for us to have our livelihood? Why is it that we have to work so hard to have the things we seek or the things we need. 
in the Marpel Nefesh, he says, Lama Why did Hashem make it necessary? To toil by, and this is a biblical quote, the sweat of his brow. It's a euphemism, but it's a biblical euphemism. God said, by the sweat of your brow. So Torah says so. To arrange all kinds of things until a person finally reaches the parnasa. Sometimes a person will go and involve himself in 50 transactions, all of which come up empty-handed, and finally the 51st transaction, he hits pay dirt. And all 50 transactions were of value. But why did he have to go through 50 transactions? It is said that Thomas Edison, who invented the light bulb, failed 999 times. Now maybe that's an exaggeration. Maybe it's 99 times. But it had nines in there, and it was a lot. And it wasn't just nine times. So the story is told that at a press conference where he was introducing his light bulb, his new invention, Thomas Edison was asked by a... Those who are asking if they're late, they're not late. We started late. Anyway, he was asked, uh, how does that feel to fail 99 times or 999 times? And he said, I didn't fail 99 times. I succeeded in 100 tries. So that's one way of looking at it. And perhaps when we look at the foibles of reality and the nature of human efforts and attempts, that's the way it is. Each failure becomes a lesson. And maybe when it comes to academia, and maybe when it comes to learning how to invent something new or discover new technology, maybe indeed those various steps can make you wiser each time. But couldn't Hashem have taught us the lesson in an easier way? You know, the microwave oven was invented by accident. There was a fellow who was going for a job interview and something that generated microwaves melted the chocolate in his pocket, which made for a very bad interview, but it eventually led him in the track of an amazing technological breakthrough. There's so many examples of this. Rubber was invented by quote-unquote accident when something fell onto a pan and the Bunsen burner. So the person who is trying to create something else ends up creating rubber by accident because that's what Hashem arranges for it to be. That's what making a living is like a lot of times. And the person who tries to sell a home or, or sell a product and makes his or her presentation time and again and fails a whole bunch of times. The person who sets off to receive a particular contract, to make a bid, and they work really hard at putting a, a, a schedule together and a price together, and they end up losing. Another contractor gets it. They say, well, that's, that's business. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Why couldn't Hashem arrange it that if you wanted the contract, you get the contract? And your competitors, he sends them somewhere else. Why indeed does it have to be that way? It's an optimistic way to look at things and say, well, you know, I made 50 attempts 
to seal the deal. And I know that the 51st attempt was just, was just what it took to get there. I had to make those first 50 attempts. I mean, clearly that's so, because Hashem ordained it. But the question is why? <laughs> why, why couldn't it have been more direct? So much of success is clearly not the result of our efforts. And so many of our efforts come up empty-handed. Why did Hashem have to make it that way? That's what the Marpilun Efesh is talking about. I think he must have been in business to know this. Or he knew people in business. And he knew how they toiled and tried time and again until they were able to finally succeed. Why couldn't everything be ready? Really? Why not? <laughs> Some people like to say, you know, couldn't life be a little easier? Couldn't it be a little more straightforward and simple? Does it have to come with this much grief? The Tev Halavonin makes an interesting observation. Our planet is teeming with life. And yet, there is no other species that works as hard to provide for its loved ones as the human being. Why do we have to work so hard to make a living? How hard do animals work? It's mostly play. They just hang around their habitats. Why can't we do our thing? Be it relationship or pursuit of hobbies. Having fun. <laughs> Maybe serving Hashem. That would be a choice we make. We could have fun or serve Hashem. We can seek out a moment of carnal, physical, material pleasure. Or we can seek out a moment of spiritual gratification. A moment of spiritual ecstasy, being uplifted. That's a choice we could make. But we don't get the choice, it seems, most of the time. We're too busy making ends meet. Why is that? I mean, there's got to be, as they say, a good reason for all of this. The Paslechem says, he says, When it comes to literal food, sustenance, you know, keeping body and soul together. But it's also like that Bashar Tzorachov. The bear doesn't need to have, buy himself a mattress. He can just be comfortable. Why couldn't we just be comfortable? He just sleeps. He sleeps really well. He doesn't get up in the middle. He sleeps like, like all went along or something. Why is it that every single thing we need, not just food, comes with enormous challenges and a great deal of effort? Which, of course, brings people tremendous stress as they're filled with anxieties and worries about not being able to provide so it's not only the efforts that have to be expended. Lots of people can't find a job. And then they're consumed with guilt or worry, fear and anxiety. These are things that literally destroy a person. It's the causes of terrible diseases. 
diseases that the animal world doesn't know of. Why did God make things that way? Why does a good God make things that way? That ultimately is the big question. It's a fair question. It's a question that has to be asked. Because if we're to develop a sense of trust in Hashem, if we're to be able to place our full reliance on God to the point that we can be blissfully relaxed and rid our lives of all and any anxiety, if we are to live with certainty, this is a question that has to be answered. It's a part of our theology that really has to be clarified for us. And so, the great Rabbeinu Bahaya sets out to do exactly that. But before I continue in the words of Rabbeinu Bahaya, I thought I would take a moment to share with you the way this very question is posed in the writings of Hasidus. In many places, but I'm going to highlight for you Two, two different memorim, a mimer of the Rebbe de Tzemach Tzarek, the third Rebbe, which is found in Derech Mitzvah Secha, that talks about different mitzvot and explains their mystical reasons. It happens to be under the title Tigalachat Mitzora, the shaving of the Mitzora, and I'm going to talk to you about that. And there's also the question as it's framed by the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe, in Kuntus Umayin. But first, both of these memorim base their question, the explanation of this same question that Rabbeinu Bahaya speaks about here, which the closest we get to like the shocking nature of the question is if God is good, and we believe God is good, so if God is so good, why do you make it so hard? Because God is good. The God of goodness. And I want to point out before I go to, to this verse, that our own life is much more valuable than the food we eat, the clothes we wear, or the homes we live in. And all the possessions that we own pale in comparison with a functioning body. If you are blessed as am I, and you can see, if you can hear, if you can digest, if your body can process and rid yourself of toxins, if you can draw a breath without effort, you're beyond blessed. Do you know what repairing a single part of the body costs? Far more than the homes we live in. And there's no guarantees. So life itself came for free. Hashem endows billions of us with eyes, ears, a heart, a stomach, lungs, a liver, kidneys, and the list goes on. And this he doesn't make you pay for. And this we don't have to earn. When it comes to our daily bread, then we have to sweat by our brow and be filled with anxiety, worry, and concern. Most people don't worry about their, their health. They don't worry what happens if my stomach collapses. What happens if my kidneys stop working? They don't even think about that. But they're thinking about what happens if I lose my job. Or how will I afford this thing I need, or sometimes, yeah, how will I afford literally to have a roof over my head, to shelter my family during the cold winter months, keep my children safe, and make sure there's food to eat? So the question is, God is good. And we see that he's good. He gave us this incredible body, this incredible reality. So why would he 
make it so difficult to earn a living. There's a pasuk, a verse in the Torah. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15. It's the 18th verse of the chapter, and we speak about an indentured laborer. Now, this is a person who may have chosen or may have put himself in a difficult situation where he had to be, and I quote, sold into an indentured period of labor. That means he can't quit. It doesn't mean that his master can beat him. It doesn't mean the boss can abuse him. Quite the contrary. Most of the ideas that we would term today the Bill of Rights are actually lifted from the Torah's description of how this Evid is treated. Now this Evid, this slave as he's called, if you translate it literally, or indentured laborer, has the possibility of choosing to remain on for an eternity. Well, in Judaism, eternity, in legalistic sense, never goes past 49 years. The Jubilee, time for a hard reset. So the Jubilee comes, and you have to send him away. Even though he elected to remain on. At this point, he's got to go. He's got to go be an independent, free-spirited human being all over again. And you have to send him away, but don't send him away empty-handed. And then the Torah comes along and says, don't, don't find it difficult in your eyes to send him away. He's worked for you. He's worked for six years. Maybe he didn't choose to stay on. But when they, that indentured laborer leaves, you have to make sure that he's provided with some kind of severance package, something that enables him to put his life together. And then, verse 18 concludes with these words, The Lord God will bless you, Asher Tase. In everything that you do. The Lord God will bless you in everything that you do. Why is the Lord God blessing me suddenly in everything I do? So the commentary, known as Chizkuni, one of the great Rishonim, who comments on the entire Torah, states the following. Bechol makom. In every situation, every place in Torah, Sha'omar Lahem Akadish Barhuli Yisrael, where God says, Shayvatru Mishalahem, that you should be prepared to give away wealth, affluence, residuals. You're gonna have to part with something you possess. And you have to do it Lashum Mitzvah, because it's it's a command from God, not because you're a nice person a good person, a generous benefactor, because Hashem said so, because you're an obedient servant of God. Nobody likes parting with their money. Nobody. Some have an easier time giving. Some have a really hard time giving even the smallest amount of money away, but nobody enjoys parting with their money. It goes against human nature. We like to keep our own possessions. There are people who develop a taste for giving. But invariably, when you have to spend, people don't like it. They won't think twice when they go out to eat. They won't think twice when they're buying something they like and enjoy. But if they're spending on a mitzvah or spending on somebody else's needs, they think twice. They count their dimes and nickels or dollars a little more carefully. It's human nature. Don't celebrate it. Transcend that nature. The Torah wants you to transcend it. And yet, 
Hashem says the Chizkuni, who created our nature, knows how hard it is for us. So sometimes he tries to soften the blow. Whenever you find people put in a situation where they aren't happy about giving what's theirs away, Hashem says, leave it to me. I guarantee you, you won't lose because of this. This will not be your problem. Why not? I, I had money and I'm giving it away now. And, and to a person who was in indentured labor, he didn't even do that good of a job. doesn't matter if he did or didn't. In your mind, he already didn't do a good job because I'm supposed to pay him for it? I paid for him the first time around? And so the Torah's response to you is, because God will bring blessing into your handiwork. And blessing means when you do the same thing, but somehow it's blessed. The success that's engendered is beyond what you could have imagined. Beyond expectation. Incidentally, this same idea apparently was also attributed to Rabbeinu Yosef Bechor Shor. But sadly, the Bechor Shor's writings from the latter half of Deuteronomy were lost. So we only have his manuscripts till about halfway through Deuteronomy. Before this verse, we don't have the Bechor Shor anymore, but it's, it's also, this idea, is teaching is also quoted in the name Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor. And here's my point. This verse, if it's to be understood, literally is Hashem's promise that He will bless you. When does He promise to bless you? When you think you're going to lose. So does the blessing only apply when we think we're going to lose? Does it mean that otherwise success is ours? Obviously not. It's just that here Hashem wants to emphasize it for you. Perhaps you might earn a greater blessing by doing the right thing. But our sages understand this verse, although it is scripture specific, meaning it's addressing a particular issue over here, but it also has an overarching meaning. Namely, God's blessing is what provides us with success. But we need to do the asiyah. We need to do that hard work. Okay, so the Tzemach Tzedek quotes this verse. And the Rebbe of Tzemach Tzedek says, in Derech Mitzvah Omad Kuvav, he says, I don't understand. Lama Omar why does he have to first make efforts and work hard in business? <laughs> Hashem says, you work hard, I'll bless you. But first you work hard. Why does he have to work hard for? And then Hashem will give him Then he'll give him what he needs, the livelihood for he and his family. Why not? So that Tzemach Tzedek takes a different approach. It's not different than Rabbeinu Bachaya, it's different than the commentaries, the traditional commentaries of Rabbeinu Bachaya. The most of, uh, like, that they the muster is, the, is Neder Barkodesh, who says, Habayra Hametiv, God is good. The Teva Levonin says, Why wouldn't he give us at least what he gives the animals? Supposedly, we're created in God's image, he loves us more, so <laughs> why make life more difficult for us? The Tzemach Tzedek says, Our sages teach us at the beginning of the year. Each and every single one of our futures has been decided. That's what it says. 
How much money will we make today? You or I? As much as God decided on Rosh Hashanah. It's a done deal. So if it's a done deal, he says, or as our sages put it, the livelihood of a person is measured out between Rosh Hashanah and Tilyum Kippur. So the Rebbe says, if they're already all measured out, if they're already allotted, if God promised it, he's got to give it. <laughs> what difference does it make if I'm going to make the effort or don't make the effort? Why do I have to do it? God promised it, then he'll find a way to deliver it. Will it be a lottery? I don't know. Will I discover buried treasure? Maybe. Why not? Really now, does God, does God have any limitations? Do we believe this? Is this like the real deal? Well, if you believe it, and it says Hashem promised you whatever is coming your way, why do you have to work for it? Vada yikayim. Hashem will certainly fulfill what he says. Hahu omar yasa. In poetic scriptural prose, he will say and then not do. Chas v'shalom. If you work hard, you're not going to make any more than you were supposed to make. Who needs, who needs the burden? Tell Jews should say, listen, that's God's business. He'll figure it out. He provides for the birds. He provides for the bees. He provides for the bears. He provides for the lions. He'll provide for us. He already promised. We did our part. We prayed hard on Rosh Hashanah. Let's just immerse ourselves in spiritual pursuit. So this is the question. Why indeed? Now the Tzemach Tzedek has a bit of an interesting approach to why indeed this is necessary. And, and it goes into, we'll see, Bezrat Hashem, if we can get to it, try to explain uh, exactly how that works out to be. Um, but I just wanted to emphasize the question in, 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 in as many words. The Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, in the collection of Memorim, which is called Kuntras, the booklet Umayan. So he says, in the 17th Maimer, he says, talks about people who involve themselves uh, endlessly in business to the point that they don't do the things they want to do, including things like coming to show getting involved in, in, a pray, in prayer services, studying Torah, you know, the spiritual things. The things the neshama actually was embodied for. We didn't come to this world to make a material living, only to die and have that, all that material decay. What was the point? The point is to come to this world, and despite its many challenges, to serve Hashem anyway. So in that case... Like, why are we going through all these motions? He says, after all, isn't it Birchas Hashem, the blessing of Hashem that brings us wealth? The main thing is the Birchas Hashem. Everything else is just emotion we're going through. 
So he says, Why do we have to have all this work? Since the blessing of Hashem is going to come, God didn't say, I have to work. Oh, he did. Why do you say that? Why did he say I have to work? If it's the Berchus Hashem. But clearly it says that. It says, Hashem is going to bless you, but you need to do your part. It's pretty clear in the Torah, you got to work. So then it's not understood. Why indeed? So let us move forward in the Shara B'Tochen. Rebbeinu B'chaya says, first off, Echad Mehem. Here's the first reason. Mipnei Shechiva HaChochma. Because wisdom necessitates. Wisdom mandates this. Wisdom mandates Bechinas HaNefesh. The test of the soul. And it's a test of the Nefesh. Ba'avedas Ho'alekim in the arena of serving God or rebelling against Him. Let's go to the commentaries. We'll start off by taking a look in the Paslechem. He says, what do you mean, chiva <laughs> chachma? What does that mean? Wisdom ordains it. Wisdom mandates it. Who's wisdom? I didn't ask for this. He says, oh. It's not your wisdom. It's not my wisdom. It may not seem logical to us, but it is wise because we're talking about chachmasoy yizborech. The wisdom of the Holy One, blessed be He. The wisdom of God, chiva lahamid hanefesh b'mivchan. The wisdom of God necessitates the placing of soul or consciousness into a test. L'nasei seisa. We're going to try it out. You're being tried. What's the question? The question is, what will you choose? That's the test. Im tivchar ho'elikim. Will you choose to use this good life of yours to serve God, to live with a sense of mission, meaning, and purpose as ordained by the super being, the creator of the universe, or Baham Or will you choose to be indifferent to Hashem's desires, to kick back, to rebel against Hashem, Who's God to tell me who I can marry? I'll marry whoever I want, says. Stout, strong, self-reliant human being. Who's God to tell me what to eat? I eat whatever tastes good for me, whatever I believe to be healthy. Who's God to tell me how to treat other people? I know how to treat them. Who's God to tell me what's moral, holy, or profane? Who's God to tell me that? What is he, the creator or something? (laughs) Funny you should say that. That's the question. Do we live a life of subservience to Hashem or a life of rebellion against Hashem? You know what, my friends? 
It really is that simple. We have a choice to make. I was once called to a local high school and I was asked questions about very politically incorrect kinds of behavior. I mean, the behavior is politically correct, but the Torah frowns upon various forms of behavior. <laughs> and this Jewish school was um, concerned that I would not say the right thing, but the kids asked for me to come, so it was like a quandary. So they had like the supervisors there ready to pounce on me if I would say something quote-unquote offensive. And they asked me about certain lifestyles. So let's say, for example, they said, so what do you say about um, if I fall in love, if a Jewish boy falls in love with a, with a non-Jewish girl, for example? It's all about love. What could be wrong with that? Are you not racist? So first of all, how does that get to racism? A Jew can be black, blue, green, yellow. It has nothing to do with race or ethnicity. They said, here's the point. We all get to choose between a life that is holy or profane. It's as simple as that. Some things will ever be profane because there's no way to sanctify them. God in his Torah said, this can't be sanctified. Some things can be done in a profane way or in a sanctified way. Said you, could, you guys could be two Jewish kids. You can meet and get married and you live profane. You're not living with family purity. You're not living with holiness. You're not living. Your intimate life is not governed by the laws of Torah. You're living in a profane way. That's a choice you make. I said, who am I to judge anybody? I'm not God's policeman. At best, I could be a salesman. That's all. All I can do is try to encourage everybody I meet and remind myself 50 times an hour that I should choose to do what is good and right instead of doing what is good for me and self-serving. I can either leave a, live a life of holiness, which means bitl subservience, or I can live a life of klipa, a life which focuses on the exterior realities in which what is most important is my own personal self-gratification, God's will or desires notwithstanding. A profane life or a sacred life. That's the choice. And that's the test, says the Paslachim. That's why God made it hard. Because he wanted to see, how will you choose? This is not going to be an easy test. It's not easy to pass this test called life. So Hashem made it really difficult. Rebbeinu B'chayah now posits that in order to make this test as challenging and as meaningful as possible, we had to work really hard to make a living. That doesn't make sense to you? I know. It doesn't make that much sense right now to me either. We're going to work this through. Like, why did I have to have a hard time making a living? Why couldn't I just have all kinds of unhealthy lusts and cravings and desires and overcome those things? Which, by the way, we all have those. Whether it's arrogance or anger or slothfulness or pursuit of sensual libido, whatever it is, we all have our shtick. We all have our unique challenges as much as we all have the same challenges. And we have to choose a life of holiness, a life of profanity, a life of service and selflessness, a life of selfishness and arrogance. That's the choice we have to make every day. 
Okay, now what, what does it have to do with having a hard time making a living? Hold that thought, because this is going to make sense by the time we're finished today. We're just going to get through this. So the Pash Lechem has left us a little bit, um, maybe one thing. Okay, it's all about a test. All right. That's why he couldn't feed us? <laughs> you had to dangle the food before us and <laughs> try to make sure that we do all kinds of hoops until we got that little bit of food? Is, is there maybe a better reason why we had to work so hard? Let's take a look at the Neda Bakredish's explanation. The Neda Bakredish is like this. Chachma? Wisdom? Yeah, wisdom. Shal Habayra, wisdom of the Creator. Okay, so this is not wisdom that's going to make sense to you and I because the wisdom of the Creator is of a different sort altogether. Just as you understand that, we cannot ascribe corporeality to God. That's ridiculous. God doesn't get hungry. He doesn't have ingrown toenails. It's ridiculous. A God that is corporeal is a God who's limited. A God who's limited is not a God. He's just like bigger and stronger than us, but doesn't make him a God. God, as we define God, is limitless. And just as you understand, or, or should understand, that ascribing corporeality from a Torah perspective is patently ridiculous and actually considered to be a violation of basic Torah principle, the same is true about applying the human terms of intelligence to God. Intelligence is the ability to know, the ability to intuit, the ability to discover, the ability to analyze, contemplate, the ability to come to a decision. All of the things I mentioned are trapped within the frame of time. A time I didn't know, a time I learned or discovered. A time in which I chose to invest my powers of intellect to analyze, and through toil and effort, intellectual toil and effort, I came to understand. That's all about past, present, and future. That doesn't apply to God. God is melech, molech, himlech, was, is, will forever be. We can't apply anything that is trapped within the vicissitudes of time to the divine being. So, the wisdom we're going to hear about here is not wisdom as we know it. But it's the wisdom of the Creator. And Rebbeinu B'chayah calls it hachachma. Because there is a wisdom to this. Livchenes anefesh. To test the soul. To test the soul's metal or spiritual courage. Linasoisa. Linasoisa, he says. Although Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar pointedly does not use the word nisayon, he uses the word bechina. Bechina is like Hebrew for a test. He says this is similar to the biblical idea about the first Jew. His name was Abraham. He had a, a proclivity to be kind and generous almost to a fault. He didn't know how to say no. He didn't know how to rein people in, especially his own child. He was uh, out of control. His wife had to guide him, more like instruct him. And God has to say, listen to your wife. So Abraham is this 
beacon of benevolence. Just gives. And then God comes after having tested Avram again and again and again. It's the tenth and final test. Baha Elikim Niso Es Avram. Hashem challenges Avram. Now the Neda Bakredish, he comes from a very interesting philosophical place now. He says, one second. So God's testing us to see if we'll pass the test. But doesn't he know that already? Of course God knows that already. So you can't ask questions like that. We don't know yet. In our realm it's not known, he says. And the fact that we don't know the end of the story, that's definitely our benefit. So Abraham didn't know that he was going to be told to place Isaac on the altar and then told, take him right down. If he would know that, there would have been no test. So Hashem challenges us. And we find many examples, says the Nedebakredish, of Nisyonot in the Torah. Even though God knows what the end is. We find this in the book of Deuteronomy, in the 8th chapter, right in the beginning, where God speaks about the manna that He fed us. And it says, God tormented us. He gave us this food that didn't bring satiation. It kept body and soul together. It was the most magical, miraculous food ever known to humankind. But it didn't provide a basic sense of satiation. Or as King David says in the 11th Psalm, Tzadik Yivchon, the righteous, gets tested. David Melech himself, in Psalm 139, says, I, I don't know, I, I can't even start to speak about this, he says, Ki Hashem you know already what I'm going to say. So, Truth be told, we can't understand this. And according to the Neda Bakredesh, that's why Rabbeinu Bachaya chose, or at least Ibn Tibbin translated whatever the word Rabbeinu Bachaya chose, to be Chiva HaChachma, the wisdom, as if to indicate that there's a wisdom here that we won't really understand. This is what we're going to call a spiritual logic, a Torah logic. It works with certain basic axioms or principles. One of the axioms and principles it works with is this fundamental inability for us to understand why God would need us to do anything. I mean, really, is the question just about a test? Because God knows if we'll pass or won't pass the test. What about all of our efforts in serving Hashem? God knows if I put on tefillin tomorrow, so why do I have to put on tefillin tomorrow? I mean, I have to. But God knows I'm going to do it anyway. So why does Hashem have nachas when I actually do the mitzvah if God knows I'm going to do the mitzvah anyway? You can't ask questions like that. It's not possible for a human mind to fathom things that are unfathomable. So there is a chokhmah, there is a wisdom here, but it is a Torah wisdom. No philosopher in the world will ever discover the answer to why a creator who is so vast and so great cares about what I think in the innermost recesses of my heart and mind. Why he cares if I give you a a look that makes you feel bad, or smile to you and say, hi, how are you? <laughs> so good to see you, and make you feel good. Why does God care? Why does God care 
If the animal was slaughtered this way or that way, what if there was another painless way to kill an animal so the animal didn't have to suffer? Oh, by the way, if God cares about the suffering of animals, why does he allow lions to tear apart antelopes? Why did he make his world in that way? Why couldn't animals just be, I don't know, vegetarians? Oh, maybe the vegetation has feelings too. There's actually scientific evidence that it may have feelings and even anxiety, knowing when its demise is imminent. I know it sounds really crazy to a lot of people. Why? Just because it can't speak? Because it can't emote? Just because it can't, can't express its fear or its pain? There's so much that's actually impossible for us to wrap our minds around. So it says, This is the wisdom of God. <laughs> we don't get to figure it out. We get to understand something of it. And we have to be mindful of the fact, the faith fact, that when we speak about God, we are not speaking about a being that can be psychoanalyzed by the human mind or ever fathomed or understood by the human mind. We're allowed to understand something, and for it we should be grateful. Ha-chachma. God's wisdom. It's wisdom we don't understand. So it's a test. The Marpel Nefesh has a, a very non-Hasidic way of looking at it. He wasn't a Hasid. He says, you know, okay, what's all about this whole test business? He says it's all about Lenase It's to uplift the Neshama. To bring to the Neshama, the soul, to a level that, that transcends its previous standing. As long as the soul was in its previous iteration, spiritual iteration, it could never reach such a level of devotion to God. But when it is embodied and challenged with everyday life, this enables the soul to rise above. To go above and beyond. And that's why we brought him to this world. To test him. Will he go with the path of Hashem? Or will he violate the will of Hashem? You know, with all due respect to all these wonderful commentaries, nobody has really explained why Rabbeinu Bechaya emphasizes the test element specifically in the arena of making a living and the challenges that are connected to it. Now, it's true that this is a, a cornerstone of Jewish theology, so that all suffering and difficulty, all seeming misfortune and pain and travail, ultimately is designed for our betterment. It's going to uplift and transform us, make us and the world a better place, and we can't begin to fathom or understand why. Or should we, by the way? As the Rebbe once said, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs really brings this out in one of his lectures very clearly, but it's, it's rooted on something the Rebbe said. If we would understand human suffering, if we could rationalize why people suffer, we would be poorer for it. We should not be understanding of somebody else's suffering. We should be heartbroken outraged, frustrated. We should never be able to countenance the suffering of another person. If there's room for rationale ever, it's towards yourself. You can speak about your own suffering, never somebody else's. The thing is that when we suffer, it's an emotional state of being. 
or an emotional state of not being? The answers are all within the frame of rhyme, reason, logic, rationale. These don't speak to emotions. So it doesn't alleviate the suffering. The suffering is not a theological problem. The suffering is a human problem. And human beings are emotional creatures. We don't like pain or loneliness. We don't like losing loved ones. We don't like seeing our bodies bludgeoned, beaten, sick or destroyed. And we can't countenance to see people we care about suffer that way. Nor should we. Never ever did Hashem say, you see somebody suffer? Rationalize it away. It's fine. Surely they must deserve it. Surely if they suffer, God is pouring His wrath upon them for their many sins. Say twisted sickos who claim to be religious zealots. That's sick. Hashem in His Torah tells us to be loving. Hashem in His Torah tells us to be compassionate. Hashem in His Torah tells us to be gracious. Hashem in His Torah tells us never ever to speak about or rationalize somebody else's suffering. We're not supposed to. Objectively, we can speak about the concept of challenge and the difficulties and travails of life. In fact, it's an open halacha in Shochanoruch based on a pasuk in Eov when they said to Job, It's your own lack of faith that has ultimately caused you to suffer. You were juvenile in faith. The Shochanoruch says that's a violation of an open mitzvah in the Torah. We're not allowed to harass or take advantage of somebody else. The Torah says you're not allowed to. It's called ona'a, ona'at dvarim, to be precise. To come to somebody who once lived a libertine or immoral life and has now returned or restored their soul to its rightful place and living a holy and righteous life, you're not allowed to come and say, oh, so nice that you're living a righteous life. I remember when you weren't so righteous. But you know, it's really nice that you've turned things around and you don't mean it as a compliment. It's a dig. That's called a no. That's called exploiting somebody else. The more you know about somebody, the more you can exploit them. When a person is suffering, to come along and to say that their suffering is deserved is an act of a no. So, Chas v'shalom, that any of us should take these words as a lecture to somebody else. And oftentimes, even for ourselves, it's very, very hard. We have to work really hard at overcoming our own pain and saying it's a test that Hashem gave us. Life is full of so many tests, so many sick people, so many grieving people, so many broken people. God couldn't give us a break and make earning a living just the basics of earning a living. No luxury, just the basics. Couldn't make it easier. What's the test? Rabbeinu Bechaya is like, I got this big news for you. This is the answer. What is the answer? Without the light of Hasidus, I don't know how it's possible to understand these words of Rabbeinu Bechaya. That's the truth. 
At least I don't understand it. So in this mimer that I referenced before, this mimer from Derech Mitzvah here the Tzemach Tzedek asks this question, he says, on one hand we say that our affluence or wealth, the blessings, have been measured out in the beginning of the year. On the other hand, we say, well, it first has to be written, then it has to be sealed. That's Yom Kippur. And then we say that a person is judged on a daily basis. And then we hear a story in the Talmud of Rav Yeva who would pray even when the food was basically in the kitchen already. Like, like how does that work? So he explains that there is a goodness that comes from heaven, but the goodness that comes from heaven has to be translated into a material reality. Here's a metaphor that's used. The sound that issues forth from our voice box still doesn't have intelligible meaning. It can tell you that somebody's having pleasure or in great pain, but it's not a meaningful expression. In order for words to be formed, we have to be able to control, limit, guide the sound. There's something called hey moitzois hape. The five different methods through which sound emerges. Some sound comes by virtue of our lips. Some sounds are made by our tongue cleaving to the palate. Some are connected to the, our teeth. Some come from the throat, throaty sounds. By the way, if this is of interest to you, there's a series I gave called Sound FX. It's about the chauffeur, but at least two, maybe even three episodes are primarily devoted to this very idea. And I encourage you to go back and watch that because I don't want to spend time on that now. Did you ever hear somebody play the flute? How does it work? It's a wind instrument. The trombone isn't really different. It's a question of being able to control the sounds. The better you can control sound, the more music you can make. Control is not chesed. It's not giving. It's not a beneficence that issues forth. It's about restraint. It's about being able to limit. But it's restraining in order to allow it to emerge in a melodious way. So the person who's playing the flute or the clarinet is going to control the different sounds that are coming out, the, the very basic sound that comes out through this wind instrument is being controlled in a very sophisticated way. And we have like, you know, simple wind instruments, which are literally like a reed with a couple of holes that you move your fingers on, and then we have a clarinet, which is extremely sophisticated. And the methodology used is controlling the sound. Do you know that the Rebbe told somebody in the early 1950s that he believed that the single greatest breakthrough of the, of the 20th century was going to be transistors. He said, everything will rise and fall on transistors. And in fact, he was right. Very few of any people knew that in 1950. 
Here's the basic concept. We learned how to harness electricity to some degree. Thomas Edison even gave us the light bulb. But in order to be able to have a small device have an enormous amount of electric energy going through it without simply exploding in fire, you have to be able to control the electricity. There are certain substances which do not conduct electricity. Wood, for example, doesn't conduct electricity. So if electricity is infused into wood, you'll have a fire. It can't conduct electricity. It can simply blow up from electricity or electric energy. Metal is an excellent conductor. <laughs> That's why in the 17th century, or in the 18th century, people had these rods of metal that would serve to save them from lightning, would ground the lightning. It would be a, a lightning, like a lightning rod that would ground it so people didn't get hurt. That was a big discovery. But in order to have something like a laptop or an iPhone or an iPad, what you need is an extraordinary amount of semi and superconduction. So rubber, by definition, stops. It doesn't burn. It simply stops the electricity. It's a buffer for electricity. Metal conducts electricity. In order to ensure that we have the right amount conducted, but not too much, we have to be able to harness and control it. That's called not conduction, but semiconduction. And that's what transistors come in. Do you ever hear the transistor radio? What was the big breakthrough? I think a little radio. People had big radios. But a little radio, we just have a little, little radio in the hand, but because it has transistors, it was able to harness the flow or voltage of the electricity. And where this will take us, nobody even knows. It's actually like, it's like, like the old bets are off. It's amazing what technology is doing today because superconduction takes it to the whole next level. The point that I'm making, my dear friends, is that on Rosh Hashanah, there's a surge of electricity. All the wattage allotted to you is, is measured out on Rosh Hashanah. The question is, how much of that wattage will actually reach you? And here is where the semiconduction begins. We need to create conductors. And on a daily basis, we have to put the wiring in place. Or, if you will, we have to get the network running. How does the network run? Every day we get judged. How will that network set up? What will, in fact, you be able to download? I'm paraphrasing the spiritual language that's used over here. But then, on page 212, or in the third chapter, the Tzemach Tzedek says like this. This will explain to us the reason of ASEC, the efforts we have to make in Masa Umatan, why we have to work so hard at being able to make a living. Suppose I daven Shacharit well this morning, and God said, You got what you, what you asked for. No problem. Kaplan, you daven like a mensch for a change. Today you didn't think about yourself, you thought about others, you thought about God. Okay. The blessings that are supposed to come to you will come to you in the most beneficent way. And now we've got to get out there and make a living. Why? So he says, I'll tell you why. Because in order for this hashpa, in order for this to come into ilam haza, into our material world, 
It has to be mislabish belavush av. It has to go into a very thick garment. The kind of garment that conceals the energy. The kind of garment that doesn't allow you to see that God is working through it. And it comes through what we call a lavush of teva. It comes through a garment, an embodiment of nature that's concealed. The nature is mitlabeshet. It, it, it encloses it. It mitalemet. It conceals. Mistateret. It obfuscates. It conceals. It seems like the world is, you know, stuff happens. But in truth, it's not so. Everything comes from God in His full glory. God chooses to conceal this. It will not be seen. You won't see the miracles. What will you see? It will all seem natural. For example, when He gives sustenance, God doesn't give it through a miracle, like the manna that fell from heaven. God sends his blessings. That the person should have a successful day in the store. A successful day in the office. Your business works. Now the revach seems like, because you're a smart business person because you made the right investments, because you treated your customers right, because you manipulated things, you know, nothing illegal, just doing everything as it has to be, because you have acumen and business strategy, and because you work your, toe, your toenails off, you really worked hard. Ah, you worked hard. And that's why, and what happens at the end of the day? A person says, I made the money. It's my money. It's all mine. <laughs> I am the master of my destiny. I am rich because I am smart because I work hard. That's what people think. It's just not true. Because on a different day, the same smart, rich person isn't so smart and definitely isn't as rich. Whose fault is it then? Oh, then it's somebody's fault. It's this guy who ruined my business. And it's the other one. And it's my mother-in-law's fault and my, my friend's fault and my wife's fault and my husband's fault and my child's fault and my friend, everybody else's fault. Maybe it's nobody's fault. Maybe Hashem decided this is the way it is today. But that really is the truth. But the truth hurts. We don't like the truth. We like to be the masters of our own destiny. We like to worship ourselves. We like to be like an idol. I am the one who provides. I, Almighty. I'm so Almighty, I created God in my own image. I told God what He should like and what He shouldn't like. I told God, what is He ridiculous in His Torah? He said certain behaviors inappropriate. I'll show God. What does He know anyway? Does He live in the 21st century? Does He have all the wisdom that me and my fellow humans have developed over time? We will tell God what's right. We will lecture to God of what's good. Because we're very smart. And I could go on. You know what I'm saying. It all begins with business. That's where the arrogance begins. Nobody ever says, yeah, my heart's working right. Of course, because I'm just like a fantastic. I treat my heart well. The people who exercise and, God forbid, they lose their health. There are fitness aficionados who 
died of a heart attack at age 40. There are people who ate healthy all their life and suddenly they were stricken with illness. Well, God forbid, in a car accident. Is anybody so dim, so foolish enough to think that he or she is actually the master of his or her own life? You can take every precaution. You can make every possible effort. You have to be an absolute behemoth, a beast and a fool, a bull in a china shop on steroids to think that you control your own health or your own destiny. But what's the thing that everybody thinks they control? Their livelihood. That's the test. That's the test. Are you living a life of God consciousness? Or are you living a life of self-consciousness? This is where, this is where the chips fall. This is where people make the terrible mistake. This is where people say, Chochmosi Omdoli, my wisdom has stood by me. Yodaiti betuv hamischar, I knew how to do business. Maliknois, I knew what to buy. Ematai limkar, I knew when to sell. How does that ballad go? You gotta know when to hold them. You gotta know when to fold them. I know, I know. It's not true. Be'emes, the scripture says, Shlomo HaMelech in his wisdom in Ecclesiastic says, Loi lechachomim lechem. In Kohelet he says, The wise do not necessarily make the money. Elalashi yitzavashem birchosei. Why is this one rich and that one poor? Why is this one successful and the other one not? Because Hashem decreed it to be so. <laughs> if Hashem decreed it to be so. Why don't we know that? Ah, because Hashem sent the beneficence in a manner that it's totally concealed and obfuscated. This is God's act of gvura. God's act of might, of self-screening and self-concealment. Towards the end of the Maimer says, Gam even when a person pleads with Hashem, he says, I know, I know the blessings come from you. Nonetheless, Loisagi, it's not enough. Yasek Elim Kim, Yasek Gam Kim, Bimasar Matni has to work hard at business. Sheyachin Levush, we've always got to create the mechanism. You must be party to the fabrication of an envelope. You have to have a good business, a logical business. You have to do what it takes so that whatever divine beneficence comes to you, it'll come to you by virtue of this envelope. You should be able to say, The only kind of business envelope that actually works, so to speak, for God's purposes is the kind of business envelope that you could actually say, I did it. This is to say, if you do a dumb business deal, and say, well, God, God wants to make me rich that way, I can do the dumbest business deal. Of course God could, he won't. Because then you lost the opportunity for the test. The Rebbe Rashab is even more clear about this. And I know we're running out of time. I want to take you forward to 
Maimer Chofei and Kuntus Amayin. The Rebbe Rashab says, there are two times in world history. There is a time of divine revelation and a time of Galut. And this is one of the major differences between Zman Galut, when we are in a Galut time, before Mashiach comes, between the time of Atid, the future time of Mashiach, he says, La'asid, you should know there'll be a Shefa, Chesed, El, Yen, Yovim, Itiz, Baruch. Don't be jealous of the animals. You too. I, you, all of humanity, all seven billion of us, will soon experience a new era in which we don't have to toil and work hard to make a living. There will be no isaskus. We'll have to make no vessel, no envelope. It'll come. Endless energy. Endless sustenance. Endless opulence and wealth. Everything you could possibly want. There'll be endless supplies of it. But that's what will be. Mashenkim is managolos in time of golos. It's not so. Now is the time of what we call avodat habirurim. Now is the time of which we have to do acts of refinement. And just like wheat has to be refined so that it turns into bread, you have to get rid of the shaft, get rid of the toxins, get rid of the husks and unnecessary parts so that you can actually extract the good part. And then after you eat it, your body goes through a whole other refinement process. Your body is a refinery. And then it spits out of the other end all the bad stuff that you can't keep inside you if you want to stay alive. And it extracts the tiny bit of nutrient that you actually need. That's what... Life's about in Golos. It's called a life of constant refinement. And in this life of constant refinement, you need to engage yourself, work really hard at creating a keli of parnasa. The tam hadaba, the reason for this? Why does it have to be asiya? Why does it have to be hard work? Davka? Because the hashpa of Hashem can only come through what he calls levush ha'asiya, through the garment, through the obfuscation, the smokescreen, the camouflage of hard work. So Hashem's bracha has to be embodied. And that's why we say, says the Rebbe Rashab, that's why Isaiah, the prophet, says in his 45th chapter, in verse 15, You are indeed God, a hidden God. In Elikus, there's Kale, Aleph Lamed, there's Gilui, and then there's Kale Mistater. Then there's God as he conceals himself. The Rebbe Rashab says, Do you think there's a difference between God's being concealed and God's being revealed to God? It's God doing everything. Whether God does it in an over-direct way, as we learned in the previous episode, or God uses multiple mechanisms, an enormous amount of cause and effect, a whole stunning, dazzling domino effect. It's all Hashem in the end. From Hashem's perspective, there is no difference. From our perspective, we don't see, we don't appreciate, we are not able to recognize easily the hand of Hashem. And that's why he says the word teva, comes from the terminology of sunken, like sunken in the sea. Because when you look at the sea, you don't know about all the shipwrecks. You don't know about all the natural resources. Everything is concealed. Truth says it's a bad metaphor, truth be told. He says, because the sea doesn't create its wealth or that which it contains. But Hashem creates everything and conceals everything also. 
When you say the divinity, divine beneficence, God's blessings are concealed within nature. God created us this way. Why? Because he wants us to seek him out. And it doesn't happen easily. He made it so hard to find his presence. He concealed himself so well that when it comes to Parnassah, we fail the test so easily. We think the smart people, the wise people, the hardworking people, they succeed. The dumb people, the untalented people, ah, they're going to fail. Except that it's just not true. Because the truth is that the challenge of this time, the test of this time, is to seek out the presence of Hashem. And this is exactly what it's about. It's about taking the time to contemplate the truth and be mindful of it. And that happens, says the Rebbe Rashah, through analysis, through contemplation, through hamokas hadas, through intense cerebral activity, through looking carefully and seeing past the obvious. At first glance, you will always find it easy to come to a mistaken conclusion. It's never going to see, appear, be what it appears to be. Never. That's the test. That's the test, my friends. It's only when we'll put that effort in. It's only when we'll think and be mindful of this that we're able to reveal that. And that's because Hashem is testing us. Hashem puts us in a situation. On page 128 here, He says, It'll always be the case that you could make a mistake. Doesn't matter how religious you are, doesn't matter how pious you are, doesn't matter how spiritual you are, doesn't matter how scholarly you are, you'll easily be able to make the mistake because money makes you crazy. Success blinds you. And you're going to have to constantly work on it. You'll always be able to think, Heaven for fen, make the mistake of, I did this. His wisdom, his smarts, his acumen, that's That's what did it. That's what brought it to him. They are but mechanisms, they are simply envelopes, they are not actually the blessing of Hashem. It's a pipeline. The bracha comes from a higher place. He says it's just like the harvest. The Torah says that it comes through Shemesh V'yarech, that it comes through the, the light, the solar energy, that it comes through, certain things grow from the lunar energy. These are verses that are found in the blessings of Meshach Rabbeinu, the 33rd chapter of, of Deuteronomy, that speak about the different things, how the things that affect vegetation, the development of, of, of photosynthesis. But So should you pray to the sun? Oh, the sun is my source of photosynthesis. You had a lot of people who did that. They used to worship the sun. That's the test. How'd they come to worship the sun? Because they understood photosynthesis. Because they understood that it's the sun that enables them to have sustenance. So they worship the sun. What other people worship the moon? 
That is exactly how foolish you look when you think that your efforts are what brought you your success. So what's the main thing? The main thing is you should appeal to God. The main thing is you should pray to the one. The main thing is that you should live a life. You should be deserving of Hashem's bracha. And if the bracha is going to come to you, then it's going to come to you. And if it's not destined to come to you, nothing you do will change that. That's the test. It's a huge test. It's the test we call life. Will we see the hand of Hashem? You know, the Gemara tells us, if you want to know the measure of a person, of who he or she truly is, you touch him in the funny bone. Bekiso, bekoso, ubekaso. Kiss is a wallet or a pocket. Kos is a cup. Or a person losing inhibition through consumption of alcohol. And kaso is when we lose control of ourselves and our anger. Anger is a terrible thing. We shouldn't allow ourselves to get angry. Who asked you to drink? You don't have to use alcohol in a negative way. But bekiso will always be the test of a person. How does the person behave when it comes to money? How does a person behave when it comes to business? How many proverbial Orthodox Jews do business in very unorthodox ways? Which actually means, by the way, they're not so Orthodox. <laughs> because if you're very frum and shul, but you're not when it comes to your vocation, profession, or business, then you know, you're picking and choosing. It's like the person who only eats chalav Yisrael, but when it comes to his meat meal, he eats pork. This is the big test. Money's always funny. Business, livelihood, vocation, profession, sustenance. This is the test. And that's why Hashem made it so hard. And now the words of Rabbeinu Bechaya ring with such clarity and clarity once we have it as illuminated by the Maimarim of Chassidus. And so he says, this is the test of Hashem b'ma'ashem marazemimenu. Hashem wants to see how will you deal with it. V'hu ha'tzeirich v'hachisodin. Your needs and your lacks. Elomashu chutzla mimaychol. The things that are outside of you. Your body you got for free. The things that are outside of you. Mimaychol, umishte. Food, drink, malbush, clothing. Moin, a place to live, Mizgal, intimacy. Hashem told us about all these things. We have to pursue a livelihood. We have to pursue relationship. We have to pursue shelter, safety, and security. We have to pursue these things to be able to build a home. All these important things, really important things to us. They come to us in a variety of ways. They all come in their own unique fashion. They eat them, you do them. And at appointed or specific times, the Paslechem says something stunning over here. He says, you have to know, sorry, the Marpel Nefesh, pardon me. Marpel Nefesh says, eat them, you do them, he says, what is this? 
Panim Yochadim means a, a specific, unique approach. He says you have to do business according to Torah. That's, that's the way Hashem expects it to be. Honesty, integrity, decency, transparency. These are the qualities we need to aspire to. Itim Yuduim. He says, let's talk about farming. There's a time to plant and a time to harvest. A time to buy and a time to sell. Why God make it like that? Because he wanted to make our business or the business model in a way which allows us for free time. What should that free time be spent doing? Pleasuring oneself? Enjoying life? Or devoting oneself to a holy purpose? That's the test. The test of a person is what will he or she do when it comes to making a livelihood. And that's why Hashem didn't make it easy. There will be a day, and it's coming very soon, when all of this will change forever. But until that time, we will have to toil. And the things that we need most are easiest to come by. That's the test. As the Rebbe Maharash says in the famous Maimer called Maim Rabim, great waters that inundate and overwhelm, threaten to engulf the soul, that was delivered in the year 1876. Extraordinary collection of Maimarim. The Rebbe Maharash says that if you look at it, you see something fascinating. He says the things that we need most are always most easily available. He says we need to drink hydration more so than we need food. Indeed, he said. Water is always cheaper. And you can always find a river or a well from which you can drink. So, Hashtia, Nitzreches Adam Yeser says that Rebbe Marash, you need to drink more. You can live a couple of days. I think they say you can live for seven days without food. If you eat but do not drink and you have no hydration, you're stuck in Miyad. You get into danger very, very quickly. You dehydrate. And he says, the truth is that water is to be found everywhere, much more plentiful, much more freely available than food is. And he paraphrases this, this, this scriptural, the, the, this, the, this, a scriptural description of the Jewish people who, who want to go through foreign lands to get to Eretz Yisrael, and they offer to pay for food and water, he says, but they never offer to pay for, for oxygen. Why, he says. You don't have to go anywhere. The oxygen is readily available. We can't live very long without oxygen. We get a couple of minutes without oxygen. Get a couple of hours without hydration or a day without hydration, maybe two. You get a week without food. The more necessary it is, the more easy it is to come by. In other words, Hashem doesn't torment us. It's all part of the test. He says, what's more expensive than food? Why clothing? But he says, clothing, clothing have two purposes. Clothing can keep us warm or cover the subject, or clothing can embellish us. The style of your clothing has nothing to do with its functionality. Beautiful clothing are not more functional. In fact, oftentimes, quite the opposite. And so he says, begadim pshutim, simple clothing, they're more expensive. You cut them, yes, Michael. But the truth is, 
You don't need clothing as badly as you need food. He says the truth is also that begodim him rakel chases besari is just to cover your nakedness. Lachen him beyeker yeser. You don't eat your clothes; you just wear them. Vakoshkin begodim yikarim. You get like fancy clothing. Sheein shum tzedeklal. You don't need the fancy cloth, the beautiful pattern. It doesn't keep you any warmer. It looks nice. It's not. It's not necessary. It's not needed. And he says, and so it is, each and every detail, people go into fancy clothing, expensive clothing, supply and demand. The less we need it, the more expensive it is. The home, shelter is even more so. But the truth is, do we need shelter? Do you need a home of your own? And what was to happen if somebody would find shelter somewhere? I know of a guy who lives under a bridge. Sounds crazy, but he actually survives. You can be a visitor, a guest. You stay in a, a, a hostel. Sounds horrible. Well, we want to have our own home. And it's one thing to rent. It's even more expensive to buy. And the Rebbe Shab continues to go, the Rebbe Marash goes through this list and he says, that's what the idea is in the prayer. We say, Merubim Amcha, that people's needs are so great and they cry out to Hashem and they say, I need, I need, I need. How many things you really need? It's all part of the test, my friends. The whole business of our needs, the things we need and the standard of living wish to maintain, it's all part of the test. And the test is not that we necessarily have to live austere lives or we should walk around in burlap sacks or we should survive and the bare modicum of bread and water. That's not the point. The point is we need these things, some more than others. We want these things. We work really hard for them because they never come for free. And there's the test. Will you remember your true source of blessing? How do you know if somebody passed the test? Well, it's very simple. If somebody says, I can't come to Shulta Davin. I can't, I don't have the time. I have to go to work. If somebody says, I can't study Torah, I'm too busy making a living. If somebody says, I can't give tzedakah, I can't share my wealth, I need to first make sure I have everything I need. Then we're failing the test. If somebody thinks that he or she is the source of their success, that their strategy or acumen is what brought them all of their wonderful riches and affluence, they're failing the test. Exilic life is a test. And I'll finish with this idea that it is not simply about elevating the soul, as the Marpel and Nefesh suggests, but as the Alter Rebbe speaks about in the 36th chapter of Tanya, Tachlis Bria Sa'ilam, the ultimate mission and purpose of the creation of the universe as we know it is so that God might have a dwelling place here in our realm. A person could think 
that the creation of a corporeal, dense, and concealing world is so that we should exist in this world in order for us to be able to merit personal elevation, personal salvation, so that we might be vaulted into a higher place. Isn't that what God wants? He's chafetz chesed. God wants to do good things for us. So he creates this lowly world that blocks out the presence of the Creator. He tests us. He makes us work hard to make a living. And it always seems that it's our efforts that brought home the prophets. But in fact... If we can get past this, if we can see beyond that choreographed obfuscation, that carefully planned camouflage, if we can see past it, then we can be elevated by it. It is possible to say this. Many, many spiritual systems maintain that the purpose of life is the afterlife. But it's wrong. Because Torah says it's wrong. Our sages tell us very clearly that the creation of this world is not a medium through which we can achieve an afterlife or paradise. It's not a launching pad for us to move on, but rather it is in order to bring the presence of God into our world. It is in order for our world to become a place that reflects the presence of the Creator rather than conceals it. My dear friends, this is the great takeaway. The test is if we can see past the smoke screen and recognize the Yad Hashem. When you do that, you have become a microcosm of a Dira Betachtoinim. Then you become an expression of the world as it was meant to be. A world whose density and darkness cannot conceal the truth about the Creator. And the more we are able to overcome that on a personal level, the more we make a contribution towards perfecting our world and making it the place that reflects the presence of Hashem in an overt way, and then there will be no test. And that's why there will be a multitude of everything we could possibly imagine with no effort, because the test will have been passed. Through my efforts, through your efforts, through us rising above the travail and the difficulties of the here and now, we will emir to Hashem, very, very soon, walk across the finish line into the world, a world in which there will be no sadness and no suffering, no tests. The world of Mashiach. May it come our way speedily. Bemheira will be amenu, amen. If you found this uplifting and inspirational, please like. I'd ask that you share, and if you aren't yet, please subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Have an amazing day. May we hear good news, may we share good news, and may we finally welcome Mashiach, B'meira, Ubi Ameinu Amin. Thank you. Thanks for joining today.